welcome to the 49th episode of Total Pod Mode, your weekly comedy gaming podcast. My name is Will, and I also go by Hoodafunk, and I'm joined here by my good friend, co-host, and fellow gaming enthusiast, James, aka Mr. Bames. What's going on, you mysteriously maverick minx? Coming up this episode, we've got our regular games catch-up, followed by the weekly gaming news, where we discuss a deal struck between Sony and Microsoft, an upcoming showcase you'll be very interested to hear about if bullying dinosaurs is your thing, and we round off the section with news of how Diablo 4's freshly released Season of the Malignants is being received by players. We'll top off the episode with a healthy scoop of Completionist Corner, where this time we explore the airborne city of Columbia in Bioshock Infinite. But before all of that, let's lay out the socials. You can, as always, find the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts by searching for Total Pop Mode. We also post regular video content of our playthrough stream highlights as well as the podcast on our YouTube channel, Total Pod Mode. You can also find us on Twitter by searching for at Total Pop Mode, all one word. And whilst you're there, you can find me at Mr. Bames. I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Mr. Bames underscore TPM. And you can find me at Hoodafunk on Twitter. And I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Hoodafunk. Okay, man, I'm going to hand this one over to you. What games have you been playing this week? So I'll start off with a game that I didn't think I'd be talking about again this week. As you may remember last week, I picked up a few things in the Steam sale that I sort of said, won't play much of these, probably dip into them a little bit here and there, but nothing major. Uh, turns out that that was an incorrect statement. I have played a lot more AO Tennis 2 this week than I've had any right to. I've gotten much better at it and it's really fun. So I've got my low stat character, a little me running around, working my way up the ranks. Uh, Nice, nice. Winning some tournaments. I was going to ask what's actually got you hooked into it. Is it the tournament modes and taking a custom character through or has the gameplay just really won you over? A bit both, I'd have to say, man. I mean, I always like tennis games, but I haven't really played a tennis game to any sort of major degree since Virtua Tennis 2 way back when. Right, okay. And uh, the career mode in that was pretty solid, but obviously it was limited by the time. I take it that that predates Topspin. I I don't know when Topspin first came out, to be perfectly honest with you, but Virtua Tennis 2 right. was PlayStation 2. Like, okay, okay. It's when okay. Venus Williams was the better of the Williams sisters, if that helps. I don't know how your tennis knowledge is. Yeah, I'm not a tennis fan, okay, so uh, yeah, that means nothing to me. But the, the PlayStation PlayStation 2 generation, that was a much better framing. I got that right away. Dear Lord, what a sad little life, Jane. It's probably the best tennis game I've played since that. The career mode is just, um, it's nothing too major, but they have little things that sort of just make it feel a bit special. Like you start off and you're managed by your dad's mate or something. I don't know where he is, but he's just some right. random guy. And because of the way I started, I was achievement hunting. I was being really moody and stuff and petulant, like throwing my racket around and stuff when I lost the point. Oh, so you can actually choose how your character behaves kind of off the court well, or outside the game anyway. That's cool. No, it's during the match this is, but it affects your reputation outside the game. Fine, fine. And so my original manager was like, I won the tournament. It was my first ever tournament and I got the full negative review achievements. I was like, sweet. I can be nice now going forward. Is there an option kind of to go McEnroe style and just start screaming at the umpire? You can't be serious, man. You cannot be serious! That ball was on the line! You don't choose what you do, unfortunately. No. But there is one where you throw your racket into the floor. There's one where you like <laughs> berate the umpire, but you can't hear yourself say anything. And things I'm just like imagining that. like a QTE or you've got to like mash circle oh, no, to no. berate harder. No, no, you press down on the directional pad after a point. <laughs> it down. <laughs> and the, the, well, the funniest one for me was actually um, the guy I was playing, because this is when I first started, I was playing on the lowest difficulty settings while I got used to it. And the guy did like 
I think two double faults in a row. And I did the negative reaction and my guy really sarcastically like put a thumbs up at him. He's like, well <laughs> right, done, okay. mate. That's and I was cool. like, fucking hell, you're a dick. <laughs> but after that, like, I got a cut scene with the manager after I won the tournament. He was like, I, I can't handle you anymore. You're throwing rackets. You're mouthing <laughs> off to the crowd. Like, we're, I'm, I'm moving you to a new like management company or whatever. And uh, <laughs> I actually got this like proper upgrade to like this guy who looks proper professional and was like super nice. And then I started being nice. Oh, okay. And so it's just quite funny. I'd, it'd be interesting to see what happens elsewhere. But yeah, uh, and it's just been really fun. It's little touches like that where you've sort of got a management company company behind you you can set your training you can choose what tournaments you enter and what you rest for you can request your doubles partner you can be rejected this may all be stuff that's happened in other games in the interim since virtual tennis 2 but i like all this stuff and then the gameplay is just what really takes over the top it's just really fun Fair enough. I mean, a really strong campaign with options, what you can do outside of the match, or at least uh, even behind the scenes in some cases, like some of the WWE games and the later NBA games as well. You can do some pretty heinous shit behind the scenes and you have quite a few dialogue options there as well. A lot of them are quite hilariously voice acted from the footage I've seen there. Is there actually voice acting in this game or is it mostly kind of text based outside of the match? Uh, your character doesn't talk, but you do get voice acting from others. Your coach and stuff, they berate yeah, you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but no, so that was a surprise to me. And then the other game that I've played this week that I'll talk about was an even bigger surprise to me because it came completely out of left field. What was that? I had no intention of playing this game. It wasn't on my radar. I was struggling for inspiration. I saw it and I was like, ah, f*** it, I'll try you again. Roll the dice. It's another one of these games that I've tried, similar to Dragon's Dogma when I was talking about that. I've tried it multiple times over the years with varying levels of success, but I've never gotten far in it at all. But I actually completed it this week. Oh, and wow. I think that uh, the major difference was the fact that I didn't play it straight after any other games of a similar ilk. So I can see the suspense in your eyes. You're dying for me to tell you what it is. I played Lords of the Fallen. Oh, no way. Week. Okay, okay. Yeah. 2014's Lords of the Fallen. Do you know, I actually remember the last conversation that we had about that game, and I was kind of saying that it was very baby steps for me, but I was kind of enjoying it. It obviously felt less polished and takes a minute to get used to compared to Dark Souls, as we kind of always say about games that have a familiar type of setup, but are just different for various reasons. Yeah, and I believe in that very same conversation I told you it was sh Yeah, exactly yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you really weren't into it. I, I mean, I, again, I, I can only assume that we both only really had scratched the surface of that. And in all honesty, I didn't progress past that point after telling you that I didn't think it was so bad. Mm. So uh, lay it on me, man. What's changed your mind? So th I think, honestly, the thing that's changed my mind, looking back to when I last played it, which would have corresponded to when we had the conversation, which was uh, end of 2021, would you believe? Was it really? And that was around the same time that I was playing uh, shout-outs to my mate Daniele, I had just started a Dark Souls 3 campaign with him and we were doing co-op together. Ah. And I think the issue that I had when I tried it last was is that I'd played it literally straight after or during the time I was playing Dark Souls 3, where obviously it's going to feel sh that is like a massive light of yeah. scrutiny, direct comparison yeah. to the godfather of that series. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's like, what are you doing? Like, of course it's not going to be good if you play it there. Although I must admit, I had tried to play it a number of times before on Xbox and had, had similar feelings. So it was a massive surprise to me when I got hold of it this time and was just like, okay, no, this is clicking this time. I don't know if it's because I've played more games like that now. I mean, honestly, since I think I've said this to you before, I can't remember said it on the pod, but since completing Neo and Neo 2... I feel kind of untouchable in these games. <laughs> 
Because that they just like made me so much better because I had to be way more patient. Yeah, and maybe you've kind of broadened your horizons in terms of what you can accept to be a, a good game of that genre. Yeah. So you're kind of stepping outside that it needs to feel like Dark Souls and kind of yeah. more willing to accept something that feels slightly different, same, same, but different. Yeah, and to be fair, I think without the direct comparison playing it through this time, and I haven't played a Souls game since I played Elden Ring. Yeah, yeah. Um, So started playing it. I tried to carry on my old file first, and I was like, no, I have no idea what's going on. I need to start again. <laughs> yeah, fair play. And yeah, man, I just got super into it. Um, It's very easy, I will say that. And again, oh, yeah. I think literally from the comment I've just said, since I've beaten these Neo games, I, I feel relatively untouchable. So I think going into that with that confidence, and then... Like, I'll say it now, and I don't mean this as disrespectful as it's going to sound. It's just not as well made as the Dark Souls games or the Neo games. But it's a smaller company. I, I, they might even have been independent back then. I don't know. And I imagine that this is their first iteration of a game of that genre, perhaps. So I guess you can kind of appreciate that they've got a big mountain to climb in terms of where they yeah. started off and where they could potentially end up as well. Does this make you at all interested in Lords of the Fallen, the upcoming Lords of the Fallen title? Well, I was interested in that anyway. Oh, right, that okay. Looks a lot better, but I'm more interested in it now for sure. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, as I say, I um, it's quite a short game as well. It's about 10 hours. I was going to say, you managed it in a week. Probably nine and a half, ten 10 hours um, to finish fully because I did a little bit of New Game Plus as well, and I think I'm at 10 hours 20 or something for my playthrough. Really fun. Uh, the story is okay. Its delivery is a little janky, I will say. But again, for the same reasons we've outlined there, smaller company, probably their first foray into this sort of game. But the gameplay loop was surprisingly fun. The weapon combinations and the different variety of movesets and things was appreciated, although I did stick to more of a strength build with like big swords, big hammers, big axes and things. Didn't use the magic much at all. Just had a really good time with it, man. Uh, the story basically follows you're a convict who's been broken out of jail by a random monk it seems right, okay uh, you, you save him you lose him you have to find him again there's a whole sort of heaven versus hell-esque style thing going on it's not quite like that but the demon army are called the rogar and they're like led by a demon god who i think was called ardir or aldir or something like that I, apologies for forgetting that but he doesn't really appear much in the game sounds like it's taking some notes from norse mythology there just based on those names alone i also think doesn't the character have kind of like norse runes uh, scarred across himself on his skin is am i thinking of the right game you are thinking of the right game i don't yeah. know if it's norse runes the law reason given is that when you're a convict you get your face tattooed so that people know you're a convict fine right um okay. i don't you you're probably better place to tell me this his name's harkin does that sound norse to uh, you yeah it sounds like it, it could be a, a norse name yeah i think isn't there a dude in skyrim called harkin uh i um, think that the head of the vampire guys in the dawn guard dlc is called something similar to harkin I can't right exactly okay maybe i'm misremembering i think it's harkon ah uh, yes Harkin okay so that that's for sure yeah that is a, yeah. a, a nordic name yeah i probably think i've got yeah. like a cousin called harkin or something probably <laughs> it's ym if that helps right right so it could be derived from something norse i suppose but yeah no and as i say just the, the, the whole loop of it the lore behind it was really cool and actually makes me intrigued for the reworked reimagining whatever the hell this new one they're called is because i think it's the same sort of lore but the story of harkin and what happens next and all that good stuff i don't think that's actually going to be canon in the new one right okay but yeah man completely came out of left field had an absolute blast was even considering for a small while doing a second playthrough with a different class yeah that was the the question that i wanted to ask actually was uh you said that you didn't really touch on the magic did you give it a go at any point i didn't purely because 
you need to get your faith stat to a certain level to unlock the next level of various spells, and I'd focus right. purely on strength, endurance, and vitality. So. I was going to say, I know a boy like you ain't f***ing around with any of that wasted skill points. Min-max no, to the max. No, no, no. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, that's interesting. I was just wondering uh, how the spellcasting works. Does it work by kind of like a charge system, like the older Dark Souls games? Does it work by a mana bar? Did you see that there was a mana bar in the game? Yes, no, there is a mana I did use magic. I don't get me wrong, there's some ghost enemies towards the end that don't get affected by physical, and they pissed me off. Because uh, I had the tiniest ass magic bar. Right, yeah, of course, of course. With the base level 8 in faith <laughs> that you start as. Um, yeah, the magic's kind of cool, but you have to have quite a high faith to unlock the cool spells for each class. So there's yeah. three class sets, if you like. I do think they have slightly different variations depending on what starting armor you pick, but essentially warrior cleric rogue and the spell they all start with is like a decoy spell okay which you need to unlock certain switches and things in the game but didn't find much use for it in combat at all it doesn't work on bosses and they're the only things that are actually challenging so yes yeah but there were some cool looking spells like the warrior's main sort of spell if you like is something called quake which i didn't use but i assume is a big old hammer thing and sends out a shockwave in front of you yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of a la Diablo 4 Barbarian. Yeah, that sort of deal, yeah. I think the rogue could go into the shadows and sneak attack people, which is kind of neat. Did have another spell, but I forget what it was. Probably poison, because it's a rogue, but I can't remember. Makes sense, yeah. And the clerics was a bit more sort of healy, tanky, maybe a lightning spell, but I, I didn't really look, if I'm perfectly honest with you. But how does the uh, how does the actual spell casting function? Are you just pressing a button and they shoot a spell? Is it a bit like Skyrim, where you can hold down a spell button and keep casting it how does that all work so you get a gauntlet that you have to get as part of the story it's mandatory and the gauntlet can fire off your sort of a basic spell attack of its own like a magic attack and that comes in three forms a single projectile a sort of wider shorter range shotgun style blast okay and i forget what the other one is i think it's like a big explosion that has a little bit of a charge time on it and they all use like varying degrees of your mana bar The actual spells themselves that you unlock for the class, you have... Again, I don't know how it would work with multiple, because I didn't get multiple, but you get like a circle on the bottom right of your screen that shows you when it's charged. You press B, and that then casts the spell. Fine. But um, because I didn't use it, I can't speak to it any more than that, I'm afraid. Well, if that is true, that does sound like it's a bit more developed than the Dark Souls spellcasting system, and and sounds like it's probably worth a, a look into that, just to see what they've done with it. Except for you only get like four spells per class. So it's quite limited in that regard. Fine. So it's not like you can just rock round like an Elden Ring with an absolute arsenal of no, badass no. wizard spells. You've definitely got me interested to check out that the next time I see it on a Steam sale. Well, that's right now, buddy. Oh, is it right on sale now, right now? It's, it? it's available for the cheap, cheap price of something like £4.36. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Much better than I thought it was going to be given my previous experience of it. Don't know what that says about me. Don't know what it says about the game, but I had a real blast. So there we go. But that is about me for this week, man. How about you? What have you been playing? Well, James, thank you very much for picking this title up for me because I'm just about to talk about Wolong. So I had a a lot of fun in this game. More specifically, I'm wondering whether I actually spent more time in the character creator across the two characters that I created rather than combined duration in the actual game. Knowing you, probably. 
The character creator is extremely impressive in this game. So first of all, I'll just go ahead and talk about the hair. The fact that you can select a base model of hair and then you can have up to two or three different extensions depending on the haircut, where you can affect things like your sideburns, the back portion of the hair, your bangs at the front of your hair and other parts as well. This was really, really cool to see in the game and it gave you a much more diverse range of options than you first saw at a kind of glance looking at the game. Oh yeah. And... I had loads of fun trying out the different combinations to get something that I actually wanted for my two different characters. And the character creator also has an absolute ton of really good quality of life little implements that make it a lot easier to compare your model and create things. One of the features that I particularly liked was the fact that you can hold the R1 button or right bumper on Xbox. You can actually hold that button and whichever toggle that you're currently on, it will revert back to what it was before you change the value. Yeah, but only as a preview. So when you let go, it goes back to what you had it set. That's really handy. Exactly that. So you can kind of tap and hold to see what it was before and then release to see what you've changed it to, which is useful for a number of reasons. Primarily because of the fact that once ever you've changed it, you can actually go back, see what the value was before and remind yourself of that. You know I like a character creator and I can't tell you the amount of times where I've gone to a toggle, I've mucked things up beyond belief and I just almost need to like go back to a default to kind of undo the damage that I've done. Because it gets to a certain point where you can't remember any of the unique values for those facial features that you want to select. And being able to very quickly toggle between the change and then go back to what you just made is a massive improvement. And it definitely sticks out as something along with the hair options actually that really really should be in any detailed character customization thing going forward it's such a good feature both of them are i agree entirely character creation is very good in this and also i don't know if you know this yet but i might have said it when you get to the hidden village as well it doesn't matter if you made a mistake and you're not happy with your model you can edit your character ad nauseum as many times as you want by speaking to the old dude in the house it's great yeah i had noted that the game gives you that reassurance during the finalization of the character creation yeah. that you uh you get that bit where it says you can change this at any point which yeah. is obviously really appreciated as well yeah and also you can respect your character in the same way for free every like whenever you want super handy very nice good times and given that it's a level based game as well it means that you're more than welcome to just go in dip out complete the game and try it any which way you want with different styles and classes as i say i spent a very very long time in the character creator in this game and in all honesty in terms of the progress i made i beat the first boss with both characters and then i explored very little bit of the next area as uh one of my characters and uh, i got to say that boss i can absolutely see why people say that that boss is really challenging and definitely the first couple fights i had it's phase two. It, oh yeah definitely phase two yeah because when i first got there i was like phase one i beat first time easily i was like why is everyone saying this is hard and then it's like oh, okay yeah i see i think i came into the first phase on quite low health so i actually got killed on that the first time but then got through that on my second attempt and got blindsided by the second phase and then at that point my approach to those games is to kind of just keep chucking myself in but go mm. full aggressive mode not in the sense that I go in and I'm just trying to attack, but it's kind of always trying to dodge into his attacks and figure out new combos and things like that. And I found that that was really rewarding. I probably kind of like chucked away a small handful of lives at that point, but when I did go in and take it seriously, I was getting all sorts of parries and stance breaks and things like that and had a really good time with it. It's definitely a challenging boss. It's really good in terms of it does require you to learn the moveset. Yeah, if you don't learn the parry mechanic in that boss, you're just, you're not going to do it, which is awesome because you need that for the rest of the game you need yes it. it's a skill check isn't it really because yeah. you can get away with at that point playing it a little bit like Sekiro on stealth mode
mode, just kind of getting stealth yeah. kills on the guards for the most part. So you can kind of stealth cheese your way through the game without really having to actually fight anyone too challenging up until that point. But at that point, it's on. But she'll knock you the out. Actually, I'll probably get my ass kicked. But yeah, and for the rest of the game, it's kind of similar. You can't cheese bosses in this game particularly easily you need to learn how to parry and deflect isn't it it's called that's right to learn how to do that yeah i've been kind of neglecting my block button quite a lot in this game much like uh senua's sacrifice and i've been focusing on the redirecting ability i absolutely love the fact that it's a combined kind of quick step and deflectability and can be used to both effects i think that that is really really cool the fact that it changes your timing in terms of unlike a dark souls game where you statically stand there and press your counter button waiting for the attack to come in because you're also traveling towards the attack in that moment it changes the way that you have to react to attacks and i really like that additional challenge it's great it's like Sekiro, but it comes like a rhythm game again yes and yes it does look amazing and the sound effect i love as well it's awesome sort of... yeah it's great yeah, like <laughs> yeah. what's your favorite weapon that you've used so far or weapon type should i say uh so i've been using a lot of the default katana that you get at the start of the game i used yep. that on one of the bosses to beat him and i also picked up the kind of the staff with a blade on the end of it i'm not sure whether that's called the uh pole dao or something I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a it's a weapon that is much slower than the katana, uh, but obviously you, the payoff is that you have increased range, so you can attack enemies from further away. Slightly higher damage as well, right? Of course, yeah, yeah, absolutely. The uh, the the slower attack rate is is balanced by uh, yeah increased damage as well. And yeah, so I did the boss one time with the katana and one time with the uh, the mystery pole bladed weapon that neither of us can remember the name of. So I haven't had much of a chance to experiment with a great deal of the weapons in the game, but I'm really looking forward to getting into that. You've got so many cool weapons to come. I know. Because... Like, those weapons are great, but some of the better weapons, in my opinion, you might have a completely different opinion to me, uh, but I'm a dual sword guy. Nice. Okay. It's just so fun, so satisfying. And I think that the weapon variation and the fact that you can so quickly switch between weapons during combat, I think that that will help the combat feel a much more fluid and varied up as well. I guess the only uh, criticism I have of the combat so far is that I wish that your heavy attack would vary based on how many light attacks you are into your combo. That's always a yeah. fighting mechanic that i really enjoy in any game it's certainly not a mechanic that you see in like a dark souls game for any reason uh but bloodborne did have some pretty cool transformation attacks yeah. in between your light swings that you would do and i would have really liked to have seen something like this in that game but the ability to switch between weapons during combos kind of offsets that as well so i think that i just need to get a bit further into the game to experience more depth to the combat each weapon can have up to two special moves that it can use as well and those add a huge dimension to the combat but you won't have any of them yet i don't think or certainly not good ones i've got one that's like a big lunging sweep with the katana but it's yeah. nothing special yeah. it just does a pretty decent amount of damage yeah you'll get some way cooler stuff like uh one of my dual sword ones is i just jump at someone and do a windmill okay cool like in midair nice. there's so many combinations and i think with a lot you'll get a lot more than i had because with the recent dlc and the various patches and stuff they've added loads more in really looking forward to getting into that but other than that man it's been a pretty completionist corner focused week for me so uh let's take us on to the gaming news so our first article this week 
Sony finally agrees to a 10-year Call of Duty deal with Microsoft. <laughs> That's right, James. Defying all the odds, Sony has agreed to a 10-year deal for Call of Duty with Microsoft to keep the franchise on PlayStation after the proposed Activision Blizzard acquisition. Nice little white flag from Jim Warren. Oh yeah, the bitch! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think that kind of the news coming out between emails where he basically openly admitted to uh, not really being worried all along that Call of Duty was never going to be on the platform and he just was throwing his toys out the pram uh, hoping that the merge didn't actually go through. I think that with all of those things in light, this has uh, finally come to a thing. Uh, particularly why I imagine is the poor perception of Jim Ryan and Sony following all of that fallout. Phil Spencer tweeted, We are pleased to announce that Microsoft and PlayStation have signed a binding agreement to keep Call of Duty on PlayStation following the acquisition of Activision Blizzard. We look forward to a future where players globally have more choice to play their favourite games. The deal is similar in nature to the one that we discussed on a previous podcast between Microsoft and Nintendo, which means only Call of Duty is included in the terms, so don't get your hopes up in terms of seeing more future ActorBlizz titles coming to PlayStation just yet. To provide a little context, Sony had resisted signing a Call of Duty deal with Microsoft after the company first offered a 10-year contract back in December 2022. Instead, in filings to regulators, Sony has repeatedly maintained that it fears Microsoft could make Call of Duty an exclusive to Xbox or even sabotage the PlayStation versions of the game, as we've covered and discussed on the podcast previously. All eyes are now on the regulatory situation in the UK after Microsoft's proposed deal was blocked here earlier this week by the Competition and Markets Authority, also known as the CMA. Both the CMA and Microsoft agreed earlier this week to pause their legal battles to negotiate how the transaction might be modified in order to address the CMA's cloud gaming concerns. The CMA went on to issue a notice of extension for its overall investigation into the deal, moving the date for a final order from July the 18th to August the 29th now. So James, we're finally seeing uh, an olive branch being offered and accepted between the uh, the two warring middle-aged men. You call it an olive branch, I call it an admission of defeat. <laughs> it's a white flag I, in the other direction from you. Yeah, I, I, I think that uh, the FTC getting their sort of lawsuit chucked out showed that actually there was never any issue, as we said all along, to be fair, and... I mean, I, I started doubting myself, I won't lie. I think we, I absolutely did. we didn't even know what side of the fence we sat on anymore. But it's nice to see clearer heads prevailing here and we're actually hopefully getting to some more adult discussions now. 100% man. And given the discussion that we had on last week's episode, I definitely didn't expect to be talking about the article this week. I didn't see this coming quite so quickly. I thought they might see what the FTC's appeal was saying before they did yeah. this. And it's also very interesting to me that the CMA are also coming around at the same time time good to see this is moving in the right direction i'm sure that the cma and microsoft will find an agreement that suits everyone and i think before the year is out this merger will be done take over whatever it is will be done i can't wait for summer 2024 when we're still talking about the ongoing debacle and that is the act acquisition yeah you know what's going to happen is that the sony and microsoft will agree xbox can have activision but we're only <laughs> yeah they split the kids up <laughs> yeah you know you can't have warcraft on pc anymore but you keep cod it's fine Okay, man, I think that's enough about the Microsoft Sony news. It's time to move on to our second article of the day. Monster Hunter Now gameplay reveal showcase announced. 
So this is an article from GameRant. The development team of the upcoming mobile game from Capcom and Niantic, Monster Hunter Now, has just announced an upcoming online showcase that will delve into the title's gameplay. Both companies have been very quiet since the initial footage we saw back in April of this year about Monster Hunter Now features and the gameplay, so the live stream is definitely something interested fans should check out. I think I might. I want to see if it is just chucking guns at monsters like we speculated it might be. <laughs> So it actually definitely looks a little bit more developed than that. I did actually take a little bit of time to watch the YouTube video uh, from back in April. And the way that it works, it seems to be, is that it functions very similar to Pokemon Go in the sense that you'll be wandering around your city and finding dinosaurs in a type of augmented reality situation. So you'll be down the local WH Smiths and there'll be a Rathalos floating around outside or something like that. that. See a couple of f***ing um, Angerathes at your local Weatherspoons, although that's just a regular <laughs> occurrence here in the UK. So, I mean, details, as this article implies, are pretty sketchy in terms of what we're actually able to expect. However, looking at some of the footage there, you can actually see what appears to be a player hunter fighting against a Rathalos, and I think at one point a Pookie Pookie, and then I forget the name of the uh, monster that holds a jar or one of its eggs and uses that to bludgeon you. The Kulu Laku? Kulu... Kulu Yaku, I think Something that's Something like that. Yeah. It's Kulu, I know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you see some fight footage there, and it definitely looks like it has more depth to it than just mashing a button, uh, similar to the Pokemon Go fights. You're just mashing it. However, that is yet to be proven. I'm fully prepared to eat my words on that. You do see a hunter running around, and you do see them doing things like dodging and doing lots of similar actions that you're used to seeing in the regular Monster Hunter series. However, it's definitely yet to be determined just how much control we'll have over those characters. Yes, and that's the thing I think that I'm the most interested to see, what we'll actually be able to physically do. Unlike Go, you can actually turn your phone into landscape mode and play the game like that as well. That was a that's very good, nice yeah. feature to see confirmed as well, because although it is very nice to hold your phone in portrait and be able to operate a game with one hand a lot of the time and i'm sure it's a case for lots of pokemon go fans is there are going to be plenty of times when they want to feel like it's more of a dedicated actual gaming experience and be able to play it in landscape orientation certainly some of the battles I'm really interested to see how this game is going to function in terms of being more akin to Monster Hunter than your regular Pokemon battles. Are you going to have to run down, as I mentioned, to the shops before to start the fight with the Rathalos? What happens? Is it going to leave the area like it does in the games? Do you have to then run down the street and follow it there, trying to capture it to do more damage? I mean, how's that going to work? They're very brave if that's a feature, because <laughs> you know some gonna run into a lake or something or <laughs> like you know because in pokemon go they actually had, they had warnings like oh don't don't run into roads now and it's like yeah don't well, drive don't, while you're playing this game or don't put a f***ing <laughs> like shiny pikachu in the middle of the road then you dickhead like what are you doing <laughs> Yes, because that's exactly what people should be doing, prioritising the shiny Pikachu rather than immediate safety concerns. Well, yeah. Shiny Pikachu's rare, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta catch them I'm imagining that it probably wouldn't involve you needing to sort of run down the road, uh, frantically chasing it, but... Is there going to be some sort of situation where you do actually have to follow it and in order to actually slay a monster, you aren't going to be able to just travel to a location and fight it for five or ten minutes. You're actually going to need to draw this out over the course of half an hour wandering down the street. Yeah. And I still think that that is quite a brave choice in terms of doing that as oh, well. Incredibly. I think expecting people to do. But hey, I mean, i got to say at the time that Pokemon Go was announced, I thought it was a pretty brave decision making a game that forces people to leave their houses. Yeah. <laughs> and look how popular that became. So And still is. You've seen crazier things yeah happen yeah 
I'm also interested to see how the social aspect works. For the last couple of Monster Hunters, it's been very much about going in with a group of people, sometimes up to four people. So will they be implementing that into this game, given that mobiles are constantly connected to the internet? Are we actually going to be able to walk over, hunt a Raphalos down the road in a park, and then chase it to the local cinema? Who knows? And how much is it going to f***ing drain your battery? That's the real question. Yes, because that is another thing that Pokemon Go has, is a really, really strong battery consumption, even on modern day mobiles. So certainly based on the footage I've seen, it seems like it would be more demanding on the phone battery. 100%. So man, I think that is uh, definitely one for interested fans to keep an eye out for, and I'll certainly keep a close eye on this one. Has to be free though. It will be interesting to see if it is free. My assumption was going that it would be free yeah. because in order to get these games across, you absolutely need to, uh, you know, release them and get them widely played is to make them free. Yeah. However, this does raise some slight concerns in terms of the monetization of Monster Hunter. Oh, it's going to be heavy, dude. Absolutely. It's going to be heavy. But, you know, it's pretty evident going from Monster Hunter World to Monster Hunter Rise that they were moving in that direction in terms yeah. of exclusive packs that you needed to pay for and more monetization for customization there. Yeah, although the one thing I will say to be fair, though, is I don't think Pokemon Go's monetization is really in your face. You can go to the store and it's there. I don't recall whenever I played it just like properly like being like, you should buy this. Yes, provided it's not that aggressive. Uh, although I have a feeling that uh, given the way that mobile gaming is typically, it's much more likely than it is for a Pokemon game, given that the audience is perhaps slightly older and Pokemon Go would really be opening itself up to criticism in terms of heavily monetizing a game that is, for the most part, a large player base of children. But I think that's enough about the Monster Hunter news, James. Let's move on to our last bit of news for the day. Diablo 4 players are encountering long queue times following the release of Season 1. Come slam our servers, guys. I know, it just doesn't get better for them, does it? Following the release of Season of the Malignant, the game's very first season, Diablo 4 introduces various new features, quests, and pieces of gear, but many players may need to wait a while before entering the Sanctuary, as Blizzard works on addressing the season's launch day issues. I can't say I'm surprised. No, honestly, I mean, given the popularity of the game as well, a new release like this, it's absolutely going to bring the player base back. It's the sort of thing, in a way, I'm absolutely anticipating this is going to be an issue whenever that Elden Ring DLC drops, is that, you know, Elden Ring had some pretty packed network issues to begin with and continues to do so in my eyes at least in recent experience however i fully expect elden rings issues to get much worse when a new dlc drops for that because at least i would say half of the fan base the initial reception are going to go in for that dlc i would say maybe a bit less and that's still going to put a much greater demand on the servers than what they're used to doing to be fair it hasn't been nearly as long uh, with Diablo, you'd kind of think that their servers were still running at pretty much max capacity and as you've rightly mentioned there as well they had the Come Slam Our Servers event you'd think at this point, especially with just the long line of issues that they've had that they would have really had a handle on this by now I mean, you know, they've been busy with FTC and things, give them a little bit of credit <laughs> yeah. as you say though, little concerning that issues like this are still kicking about I'm still getting lag issues which are starting to hinder my enjoyment of the game as well. I really feel like if they were to address that, I would be having a much more fun time playing the game and much more tempted to get back into it. I would love to say I had any sort of opinion on that, but to my shame, since finishing the campaign, I've just completely tapped out of Diablo 4. Well, that's pretty respectable, to be fair. I mean, you did say before that that was your main aim was to complete the campaign. I feel like it's probably a good time for you to give it a breather and come back when there's actually a handful of new good content rather than just kind of skimming the drippings that you may well be getting. Yeah, it's just a shame because I really thought that this would be the one that I did some of the new world tier stuff, but yeah, I just completely fell off and I haven't really had any desire to 
to go back in if I'm being honest with you. It may change. I haven't checked this out at all. I, I will have a look at it and see what it's saying. So let's see. But this is probably more interesting for you, actually, because you've got the sort of battle pass and experience boostery stuff from your big dick balls out demon slice edition, haven't you? So Absolutely that. Yeah, I actually haven't gone back in and seen the benefits that you get with that yet. I think you get something like 20 level skips, but God knows what that actually earns you at the end of the day a couple of outfits yeah a couple of outfits most likely maybe a new skin for my mount which i have yet to unlock <laughs> <laughs> start of act four you get that yeah that's right yeah i'd made that discovery a few days ago and uh yeah i've still yet to get there but uh anyway uh on with the article before we get too sidetracked Season of the Malignant continues the main story just one month after the game's launch with several new pieces of content Players must face a new form of Lilith's corruption known as the Malignants, a growing infestation of monsters that mindlessly attack any person on sight. A new questline tasks players with aiding Cormund, a former priest of the Cathedral of Light, in finding the source of Malignants and ending its spread. Malignant monsters may be defeated to gain Malignant Hearts, allowing players to channel new Malignant powers of their own. And additionally, Season 1's free battle pass grants new rewards with progression of the season journey. Unfortunately, the launch of Diablo 4's first season appears to be affecting many fans who didn't encounter login issues or bugs after the game's initial launch last month. The extent of these issues has caused some fans to argue that Season 1's launch is worse than Diablo 4's launch, and as a result, Diablo 4 players may want to wait for an update before creating a Season 1 character in order to avoid crashes and other game-breaking issues. Glad you told me that. <laughs> yes, absolutely, yeah. yeah, hold on for a minute. Some users report the inability to create a new seasonal character for Season 1 due to Diablo 4 freezing or crashing during the character creation process, while strange invisible barriers are preventing other players from progressing through Corman's questline. They see both of those as shocking. Yeah, yeah, real game-breaking stuff. Character creator crashes, damn, that's really <laughs> What bad. did they do? There's only that? like two tabs on there as well, it's not like it's deep, <laughs> I mean, Jesus. Three tabs, let's be fair, sorry. Blizzard further acknowledged the long queue times, crashing issues, and invisible barriers in the reply section of its tweets, but an estimated timeline for Diablo 4 update was not given. So at this point, we're still kind of waiting for news on that. I must say, the whole Season of the Malignant concept thing that you've laid out here sounds kind of neat, but I'm going yeah, nowhere yeah. near this until I'm confident this is fixed. Okay, man, uh, I think it's time that we moved on from the gaming news. It's time to round off this episode with Completionist Corner. Here we go for the Completionist's Corner. So this week, James and I picked up Bioshock Infinite for Completionist Corner. That's right, we decided to complete the trilogy of Bioshock that we began many months ago. Although this one isn't directly, directly connected to Bioshock 1 and 2 in the same sense that the original two games are, this game absolutely is still considered within the same universe to my knowledge, or universes, if that isn't getting a little bit too deep into the storyline already. It is. <laughs> my brain already hurts, man. <laughs> But we figured it was long overdue to finally finish off the three existing games, especially with rumblings of a new Bioshock coming in the near distant slash long term future. So without further ado, let's get it cracking. Bioshock Infinite, much like its predecessors Bioshock and Bioshock 2, is a first person shooter game with strong narrative elements and a unique, intriguing world full of history and corruption to explore. The game is set roughly 50 years earlier in the timeline events than the first two titles in the series, taking place in July of the year 1912. 
Like the two games that came before it, our player character's combat arsenal of old-timey guns is also bolstered by special powers, this time called Vigors, granted to us in the form of consumable tonics, in a similar format to how plasmids were used by Jack and Subject Delta in the original games. Although, thankfully, this time we just sip the tonics to give us powers, rather than jamming a rather thick needle directly into our wrists as previously. This time we also get a fully voiced protagonist, as opposed to the mostly silent player characters in the first games. Our character is actually voiced by none other than Troy Baker. Are you afraid of God? No. But I'm afraid of you. Also voice actor for Joel in The Last of Us games, and he also modelled and voiced the main antagonist Higgs in Death Stranding, which we started covering back in episode 27 of the podcast. Yes, Norman Reedus and the Freaky Fetus, I believe that was called. Indeed, indeed. So, Bioshock and Bioshock 2 both took place in the underwater city of Rapture, as you may remember. However, things are flipped this time, with the game largely taking place within Columbia, not the country, but an airborne city above North America, sitting above the clouds in the sky. The setting resembles large clusters of 1900s neoclassical floating buildings, with a backdrop of blue skies and clouds as the buildings gently bob and sway due to their floating and drifting nature. Many sections of the city are able to move independently using large propulsion devices, and as they move around, different sections of the city are capable of docking together enabling citizens to travel between areas. Other means of transport in the game include zeppelins, floating barges, gondolas, and things called skylines, which are suspended metal rails created primarily to transport cargo via crates. Some clever individuals did eventually create devices called skyhooks, which enable personal transport via the skylines using metal hooks attached to a holdable handle. Despite the fact that Columbia at first glance appears to be kept in the air by jet reactors, propellers and hot air balloons, the city is actually suspended in air using quantum levitation, following a groundbreaking discovery by a quantum physicist called Rosalind Latess, whereby she was able to suspend an atom in the air without it being affected by gravity. Furthermore, the atom, which was later named the Latesse particle, can also affect objects it touches with its anti-gravity properties. Much like the previous Bioshock titles, the stage of technological development in Columbia appears to be much more advanced than back down on ground level, with citizens enjoying the benefits of a lifestyle enhanced by automatons, advanced transportation, and even magical powers in the form of vigatonics. Following Lutessa's game-changing discovery, and with the support of a devoutly religious man called Zachary Hale Comstock, the city of Columbia was unveiled at the 1893 Chicago World Fair. Columbia was actually commissioned by the United States government, intended to be a showcase of American exceptionalism, with tours set up both nationally and internationally to show the world America's vision for the future. America. However, a real-life event called the Boxer Rebellion took place in China in 1901, where an anti-foreign, anti-colonial and anti-Christian uprising led to the capture of American hostages. The city of Columbia intervened in the rebellion and opened fire on the city of Peking, burning it down to the ground in the process. This unapproved attack on Peking highlighted to the United States of America and the rest of the world the dangers posed by the heavily armed and advanced forces of Colombia. Tensions grew, which eventually led to Colombia seceding from the Union in 1902 and disappearing into the clouds. With the scene set, and a little snapshot of the history of Colombia finished, let's move on to some of the main characters in the game, starting with the protagonist of the game, Booker DeWitt. Booker is a private investigator and was also previously a soldier and former Pinkerton agent. For those who don't know, the Pinkertons were a real-life private security guard and detective agency established in 1850. 
They were also known for their support in conducting anti-organised labour operations in the 19th and 20th centuries, infiltrating worker unions and breaking strikes. If they sound familiar to listeners, you might actually be remembering that they were a gang you fought in Red Dead Redemption 2. They're actually the same guys. The Pinkertons also made the news this year, funnily enough, where the Wizards of the Coast, makers of the popular Magic the Gathering RPG card game, actually hired the Pinkertons to seize cards from a YouTuber called Dan Cannon from Old School MTG, where he had recently received the cards early from a local game store in an order he'd pre-purchased. And this company set the Pinkertons on him after he posted a video of the contents of the boxes, believe it or not. That's hilarious. <laughs> Pretty wild, right? Yeah, that is really wild. I think they were also, when they mentioned in Fallout 3... It wouldn't surprise me whatsoever. Yeah, cool stuff. Anyway, back to Booker. Booker, sitting in his private detective office, is hounded by a distorted voice and loud knocking coming from the other side of his office door. He is offered a deal to wipe away all of his debts, provided he travels to Columbia and retrieves a girl who is being kept there. The game actually begins as we are being paddled across the sea in a small boat, off the coast of the state of Maine. We're accompanied in this stormy voyage by an anorak-clad man and woman arguing over who should be in charge of rowing the boat. Are you going to just sit there? As compared to what? Standing? Not standing. Rowing. Rowing? Hadn't planned on it. As they continue their exchange, the woman reaches behind her seat and hands Booker a polished wooden box with an engraved golden plaque marked property of Booker DeWitt. Seventh Cavalry, Wounded Knee. As our two guides continue their argument and ignore any questions he asks, Booker opens the box and sees inside there is a photo of a golden angel in the sky, titled Monument Island. Another piece of paper with three symbols written on it next to some numbers, a silver key marked with an image of a birdcage, a mouse a pistol, and an image of the girl Booker needs to retrieve in order to erase his debts. The picture has the name Elizabeth scrawled on it, and on the back of the picture there is a message reading, Bring to New York unharmed. As our journey continues, and the disagreement between our two guides turns from who rows into theoretical semantics, we arrive at a rickety wooden pier leading to a lighthouse. As we climb the steps to the lighthouse and approach the entrance, on the door is another handwritten message, with the words repeated, DeWitt, bring us the girl and wipe away the debts, this is your last chance. The paper is also flecked with what appears to be blood, and bravely pushing on, Booker opens the door and we enter the lighthouse. On entering the room, it doesn't appear that anyone's home, and we're actually greeted with a washing bowl with an embroidered message above saying, Of thy sins shall I wash thee. Booker stares down into the bowl and utters, Good luck with that, pal. As we proceed through this area, we go through the abandoned living quarters of the lighthouse and up the stairs to find a deceased man slumped in a chair. His head is covered by a cloth sack and he has a gunshot wound roughly where his forehead would be. The man is surrounded by a pool of blood, knives, and plenty other things that look like they could be used for torture. He's wearing a message tied around his neck with the words, Don't disappoint us, written in black ink. Booker proceeds up the final steps to the top of the lighthouse and is met with a very ornate door leading to the room where the giant light bulb of the lighthouse is located. The fancy door is marked with an angel along with three bells. Each of the bells is marked with a symbol matching the images we saw earlier on the piece of paper in the wooden box given to us by our guides. Booker uses the numbers on the paper to indicate how many times he needs to ring each bell, and once he rings the correct sequence, all three bells are lit, but the door still doesn't open. Suddenly, red light beams down from the grey clouds above, lighting up the sky as far as we can see in the stormy weather. 
The red light pulses along with a deafening booming noise five times, the same number of times Booker rang the bells on the door. The lighthouse and the clouds appear to be communicating and resonating to the same tune to each other, and after going back and forth a couple of times, the light bulb lifts up into a compartment and is replaced by a red leather chair, similar to one you'd see in an old barber shop. As Booker takes a seat, playing along with whatever orchestrated game he appears to be playing, he's suddenly binded in with metal contraptions locking in his arms and feet. We are then enclosed in a pod as a robotic voice tries to assure us that we're being held for our safety. The chair is suddenly pushed forward, causing Booker's pistol to fall down into what looked like the jet turbines below beginning to ignite, and the robotic sound voices again, this time signalling a countdown for ascension. Ascension in the count of five. As we rise higher and higher through the air, we push through the dark clouds, rising above to be met with a blinding blue sky. Hallelujah. Dotted with floating buildings and islands, and overseen by a giant golden angelic statue matching the one in the image we saw in our box. Instead of a whale passing by our underwater bathosphere in Bioshock 1, our rocket contraption, known as a pilgrim rocket in this game, is passed by a huge zeppelin floating in the sky. Our pilgrim rocket eventually docks in a tower, and the chair we are in finally lowers, releasing us from its clutches. In the section that follows, Booker works his way through a church area, with the halls filled with the sounds of hymns and praise. The floor of the church is covered by running water, and each flame from the candle casts a shimmering reflection along the ground as Booker passes by. We encounter a church girl or two as we walk through the candlelit rooms. Although this church seems to have less emphasis on praising an almighty being, and is more focused on the teachings of their prophet, a man they call Father Comstock. If you remember from earlier, this is actually none other than Zachary Hale Comstock, the deeply religious man who supported Rosalind Lutess in creating the floating city of Columbia. As we continue through, we also see an altar with an image of a woman known as Lady Comstock dressed in blue. There are words underneath reading, And in my womb shall grow the seed of the prophet. We eventually enter into a large hall with a sermon being delivered. Booker pushes past the crowd and speaks with the preacher. Before we can pass, however, the preacher tells us, Brother, the only way to Columbia is through rebirth in the sweet waters of baptism. The preacher proceeds to dunk our head underwater unexpectedly, causing Booker to splutter and cough when he is eventually allowed to rise. The preacher, however, doesn't think we look quite clean enough and forces Booker back underwater. I don't know, <laughs> brothers and sisters, but this one doesn't look clean to me. In a vision, Booker awakes, sitting back in his office whilst the voice telling him to bring the girl continues to yell and bang on his door. Who's there? Bring us the girl and wipe away the jet! Booker tells the voice to go away and that he won't do it, but the knocking just doesn't stop. Eventually, Booker relents and opens the door, but instead of seeing a hallway outside, he sees what appears to be the New York skyline, looking out from a tall height. The New York Booker sees doesn't quite make sense chronologically, however, as we can clearly see the Empire State Building, which didn't begin construction until 1930, 18 years after the game is set. Other buildings also don't appear to match with the times in 1912, as New York much closer resembles its modern appearance today. We can see New York is under attack by the forces of Columbia, as a giant zeppelin comes into view and fires a rocket in our direction. Booker jolts awake, but for real this time, no longer in a dream, and lying down on the grass in a garden. As he looks up, he is surrounded by three statues of the founding fathers of America. 
George Washington is holding a sword, exemplifying strength, courage and military prowess. Benjamin Franklin holds a key, representing wisdom and intelligence. And Thomas Jefferson is holding a scroll, symbolising justice, righteousness and morals. According to the Bioshock fandom wiki page, Comstock, along with his regime known as the Founders, believed that Columbia embodied the true society envisioned by the Founding Fathers of the United States, where white Anglo-Saxons ruled over the world and that their country served a higher purpose in civilising through military might and propagating their particular brand of religion. To many Colombians, America had turned away from its divine purpose, having abandoned slavery, religion, militarism, and racial supremacy. So these guys are kind of like harking back to the good old days of slavery, and uh, essentially at that point are just kind of maintaining the status quo of that up away from the rest of the world. Yeah. Basically, if you're black or Irish, don't go to Colombia. Colombia, the Bioshock game. Not <laughs> yeah, Columbia, the Bioshock the country. I'm going to have to like, yeah. keep doing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. James is not trying to offer tourism advice. Yeah. Uh, this is a purely gaming podcast. Exactly. I'm sure that the people of the real Colombia aren't racist. <laughs> we hope. We'd we like hope. to yeah, think. Yeah. <laughs> America and the rest of the world below were viewed with contempt described as the Sodom Below, a sinful and chaotic world which only deserved to be destroyed. Columbia, in comparison, was referred to as another ark for another time by its citizens, meaning the city was that the only source of goodness and order, and once Columbia destroyed the rest of the world, everything could restart pure and anew under the city's absolute rule. Due to Comstock's dogma, Colombians had a very narrow perspective of American history. President Abraham Lincoln was labelled the apostate by Columbia for ending slavery, and his killer, John Wilkes Booth, was revered as a saint. The Colombian perspective of the Civil War is that of a demonic Lincoln leading a barbarous horde against the saintly Confederate forces under a deified George Washington, underscoring Colombian beliefs about racial slavery as well as the anarchistic nature of the false America. It's the sort of game which is kind of beautiful to look at in so many different ways, but then that is just a thin veneer for the absolute corruption and terrible things that are going on. And that's something actually that the kind of Bioshock does on a really good level. Yeah. Even in uh, Andrew Ryan's Rapture, it looks yeah. like this new world of new ways of thinking and futuristic ways. But it's just not at all. Yeah, and it just devolves into absolute madness and psychopathy. With the city free from the United States anti-slavery and workers' safety laws, institutionalised racism and elitism were widespread and legally enforced in Colombia. Anglo-Saxon supremacy was widely asserted by the upper classes, matched with poor treatment of the immigrant working class. A lot of these themes become much more apparent later in the game. However, for now, the illusion of a paradise remains, as Booker walks through a beautiful garden full of roses, hummingbirds and merriment. Booker, in his search for the girl, who we'll call Elizabeth from now on, as the photo of her we have suggests, works his way into the city proper, passing markets, homes and shops, and becomes aware of a celebration taking place, with many of the citizens spending the day partying and having fun at the fair. As we climb a set of stairs leading to the main street, we see that the giant golden angelic statue amongst the clouds in the distance, and Booker remembers that he was told that is where the girl is kept. So that's where we need to head. To Monument Island! Our thoughts of how to get to Monument Island, however, are interrupted as a telegram delivery boy shoves a card under our nose and runs off. Telegram, Mr. DeWitt! On the card in printed ink are the words DeWitt, stop. Do not alert Comstock to your presence, stop. Whatever you do, do not pick number 77. Stop. Signed off by Latess, who, if you'll remember, worked in partnership with Comstock to establish Columbia as the city as it's known today. 
Ignoring the words of Latesse's telegram, we push on forwards. Booker passes signs foretelling of a false prophet coming to lead the lamb astray, and warning citizens to be ever vigilant of this threat. One sign even features what appears to be a demonic red hand, complete with black claws, with the letters AD branded on the back. And as Booker looks down, perhaps for the first time so far, the player will notice that we also have the letters AD branded on the back of our hand. You can actually see it in the church when you first arrive as well, if you're eagle-eyed. Yeah, absolutely. There are plenty of occasions where you can clock it before. But this is like where it properly gets acknowledged, you're right. Booker finally arrives at the fair, moving towards Monument Island. At this point, we get the first taste of one of the Vigor Tonics available in this game, and also get to play a bunch of uh, fairground games, if you so desire. Oh, good. I'm glad that you did check out those. Yeah, they're oh, quite yeah. fun. Did all of them. I want, I get the money, mate. You need the money. Get the first prize. Damn. Yeah. And second prize. Third prize. Oh, players. yes, of course. You can go back. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. just cigarettes or something. But yeah, still, good fun these were. Typical sort of like shooty things and a vigor thing. It's quite cool. But at this fair, we are offered a trial bottle of the possession vigor, which we immediately cop down and are met with a hallucinated vision where the woman who gave us the drink turns into a floating green siren who floats around us before reality suddenly kicks back in and everything jumps back to normal. Our newly acquired possession ability allows us to charm machines and turn things in our favour. With a purchasable upgrade, it even works on humans too. Booker then tries to get through a locked gate leading out to the other side of the fair, but an automaton gate guard is preventing us from going through. A perfect time to test out the new possession power, which works perfectly and enables Booker to get through. We also bump into our bickering guides in the boat at the beginning of the game, now dressed in matching formal wear, who ask us to flip a coin. Heads. Or tails. Come on, let me through. Heads or tails. Depending on the choice the player picks, Booker gives the answer, and regardless of the pick, the coin lands on heads. The woman takes a piece of chalk and adds another mark for heads on the chalkboard being worn by the man, and as the pair walk away, we can see that the board has over a hundred marks for heads and not a single mark for tails, which is, in terms of statistical probability, almost impossible. The two people leave and let us continue on our way. So uh, just a couple of points here as well is as you walk through this section and as I mentioned previously some of the game kind of hints at uh, different timelines and things occurring side by side uh, through this section you'll actually hear the song uh, God Only Knows which was released by the Beach Boys in 1966 however it's sung by an acapella group as they're touring around the carnival a barbershop quartet no less yes yeah, exactly yeah. that and you also have kind of some sort of accordion rendition of Girls Just Wanna Have Fun by Cindy Lauper obviously released much later than the game set back in 1983 as well so initially your first time through in this game you might just pass that off as you know the game creators just sticking in familiar sounds uh somewhat similar to bridgerton i guess <laughs> Uh, kind of having classical rendition of modern pop songs however this is actually intentional in the game for reasons that we'll get into later after getting a little caught up in this strange and apparently idyllic new world, and perhaps with the effects of the tonic not completely wearing off, Booker finds himself joining the raffle at the fair after being cajoled along by other citizens. Booker picks a random numbered baseball from a basketball, which of course turns out to be the number 77, which in turn, of course, turns out to be the winning number. The raffle announcer, who also goes by Jeremiah Fink, congratulates us on getting the winning number and begins to tell us of our prize. And this is where things suddenly go from idyllic to absolute insanity, where two people, a white man and a black woman, are led out on stage tied to a post with their arms behind their backs and surrounded by overtly racist imagery. And it's implied that the couple are involved romantically and are therefore being punished for their relationship due to the inhumane and twisted views of this world above the clouds. 
Yeah, this bit genuinely made me angry the first time I played this game. Yeah, it's rough, isn't it? Yeah, and obviously coming from such a high of all the lovely town that you've just exactly, been exploring yeah. to find out that the, this is like when you kind of meet someone and you kind of hit it off and you think it's super cool and then they just lay a racist joke on you and then all of a sudden you have to question your entire friendship and cut yeah. them off. <laughs> Booker is told by Fink, the raffle announcer, that his prize is actually to get first throw at the couple with his winning baseball. At this point, the player is again provided with a choice, whether to throw the ball at the couple or to throw it at the announcer, Jeremiah Fink. Which is the option that I chose every single yeah, of time course. I've played <laughs> this game. I have never been able to bring myself to throw the ball at the couple. Regardless, you do get the same outcome. But I think there is one difference. There's an interaction later, I think, that doesn't happen. If you pick throw it at the couple, you can actually meet the couple later in a building and they give you a gift. That's correct, yeah. But anyway, regardless of the decision the player makes, as Booker draws back his hand to throw, it is grabbed by Fink, as he has noticed the branded AD letters on the back of Booker's hand. Don't you know that makes you the backstabbing snake in the grass, false shepherd? We are accosted by the police and nearly executed on the spot as one of the officers tries to attack us with a skyhook, the tool used to travel along Columbia's skylines that we mentioned earlier. With the lucky or unlucky baseball still in Booker's hand, he manages to toss it in the air to distract them before introducing another officer's face to the incoming skyhook. Stop him! Stop him! Simultaneously mangling the face of the unfortunate officer and creating a new form of avant-garde facial surgery for the citizens of Columbia. As utter hell breaks loose, Booker fights off the remaining guards using our newly acquired skyhook from the smushed face of the dead officer and makes an escape. He is chased through the streets, forced to fight yet more officers and guards, as well as a number of robotic automaton turrets, which can actually be possessed by the possession ability and used to help Booker in the fight. Which I made very good use of, yeah. Yes, yeah, very useful section in this. And they take more than a few bullets to take down if you're playing on the harder difficulties, so it really does make sense to just save your ammo. And if you're not going to use them to help you in combat, just to use them so that they don't fire at you as you're running past. Exactly, yeah. The chase continues across the barges and back into the streets, where we encounter our first heavy hitter of the game, the Fireman. This heavily armoured enemy can emit waves of fire and throw exploding fireballs, and he can also self-destruct after chasing his target down in a last-ditch attempt. After Booker defeats the Fireman using weapons scavenged from fallen enemies, he is able to pick up and drink another vigour. This time it's the Devil's Kiss, which gives us similar abilities to the Fireman. After a scene where the skin and flesh melts off our hands, revealing the bones beneath and then rapidly healing in a flash, Booker can now throw exploding fireballs and charge the shots to place fiery traps on the ground that are triggered when enemies approach. So Booker eventually escapes into a building where once again we encounter the male and female guides sat at the bar. They offer us what they refer to as an aperitif, and after consuming the tonic, Booker is granted a magnetic repulsive shield around him which helps to protect him from incoming attacks and has the incredibly useful added benefit of recharging quite quickly in combat. Very handy. That is true, yeah. This is definitely a marker that Bioshock has made towards modern gaming. Now we have Master Chief-style overshields in Bioshock rather than relying purely on a health bar that doesn't regenerate and health packs that you're able to find around the game. Exactly. 
And after remarking on their surprise that the act of consuming the tonic didn't kill us, Booker is then free to leave. But in the version I played at least, and looking at this note, the version you played too, not before accepting an array of new gifts that I wasn't expecting at all, including five f***ing stat points. Yes, five stat points to give you a massive, and that is such a leg up in the game in terms of increasing one of your bar. There are only three available stats to upgrade in the game, which are your health bar, your shield bar, and your mana bar, known as your salt meter. Yeah in this game the way that you replenish your vigor abilities is to huff salts yeah. <laughs> that you uh that you uh, can uh, get from various means including bottles of tonic as well as various kind of salt dispensers around which kind of looks like a man holding a various cone that i assume you just kind of bury your face into and breathe deeply yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> no and uh just out of interest what did you use your five free points on i put them all in shield i put them all in vigor because i was actually playing this game on normal difficulty at that point I hadn't pumped up the difficulty because normal mode felt exceptionally easy, I've got to yeah. say, uh, playing this through. Until some of the much more chaotic later parts of the game, it wasn't even a struggle at all, so I did end up pumping the difficulty. Just to kind of get some sort of feeling of being a threat and under danger, sort of thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm playing on normal. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a bit and of a run-through, isn't it? very easy. Yeah. But not only did we have these uh, five free stat points in here, we also had, I want to say, eight to twelve outfit pieces kicking about some of which were incredibly handy and that i'm still using right now i know that is actually one of the kind of the problems with getting all of these definitive edition bonuses is that it gives you some equipment that is really powerful and it's almost end game level of usefulness one of them in particular uh which one are you talking about the one that gives you i believe it's 75 percent extra ammunition clip capacity yeah that's yeah. a huge one yeah that is really yeah. really useful because i found the 50 percent one just at the end of my playthrough this week basically which is game that's the problem isn't it is yeah. that you get clearly better upgrades doing this definitive edition also the difficulty of the game is skewered by the fact that you've got a massive upgrade in terms of your powers and i think it gives you something like 500 silver eagles which is the currency that is used in this game as well which can give you a massive leg up in terms of choosing which abilities you upgrade in this game i actually think it's a little bit more than 500 it may well be a thousand i think that there's also a later bit where you can pick up another 500 and i wondered whether Maybe. that was kind of definitive edition stuck in there as well and the way that this game's upgrade system works outside of the buff tonics that you can get is the fact that all of your weapon upgrades can now be bought for money instead of wandering around and finding those power to the people buy stations that you could in Bioshock 1. You used to find those buy stations and then you would only get one use out of them to upgrade one of your weapons. Each weapon had like two or three upgrades, I think. Two standard upgrades and one kind of three, like yeah. elite upgrade that gave you an additional ability or something like that. So this game does it differently in terms of the sense that you pay anywhere between 200 to 400 dollars to get your upgrade for the weapon but there are a couple downsides here i thought number one being that your weapon doesn't have a visible upgrade when you actually pump something on it which is a shame i definitely missed that from the original bioshock i really like to see a visible difference that also had a gameplay difference and that's the other point that i have is that none of these upgrades really actually give the weapon a brand new entirely new ability you know some of the really awesome things you could get yeah. like uh the rivet gun was heat it up. That was it, that was yeah. The one I remember he heated rivets, extra damaging bolts, and things like that that would actually change up the way that you could use the gun. Whereas in this game, it's just your basic standard 
clip capacity, reload extra speed, damage. and I think recoil, extra damage, that sort of thing. Yeah. Which is a shame. Feels a lot more flat than the way that the upgrade system worked in Bioshock 1. Yeah, it's, it's kind of the trade-off, isn't it? The guns are worse in that regard for the reasons you just mentioned, but you do get outfits. Yes, yeah. You actually stats. Not that you can see said outfits. And also, those outfits act in exactly the same way as the perk system did in Bioshock 1, in fact. And a lot of them are just very similar as well. Like, I think one of the abilities is exactly the same as Bioshock 1, in that whenever you get hit by a melee enemy, it zaps them with electricity. I think that is one of the pieces of equipment that you can actually find in the room or very shortly after in that section of the game. Obviously, all signs of moving towards more modern gaming. Again, that Call of Duty model of only being able to hold two weapons, whereas Bioshock 1 subscribed to the old no regenerating health and having a large weapon wheel of all the weapons that you can acquire in the game. I think some things are a shame in terms of the way that they've kind of done that step forwards, which has actually brought the gameplay backwards in a weird way. I also, the other thing, if we're talking about things that are a little bit backwards, and I don't recall this being the case in the first two Bioshocks but you've played them more than me so correct me if I'm wrong pretty sure you could just save whenever you wanted in those ones and in Infinite it gives you a checkpoint so you can save but you'll get taken back to the start of the checkpoint regardless of where you save. That's right yeah I'm pretty sure there was there was an element of saves coming that was possible in, in Bioshock 1 and 2. Yeah. It was definitely a snapshot yeah. save system. So that's kind of irritating but anyway we digress. So as we leave the room and enter the rooftops area, Booker makes the discovery that not only does the Skyhook do an awesome job at blunt force trauma, but it also is very useful in terms of using its magnetised capabilities to travel around using the various metal hooks placed in the environment. So freight hooks and things like that. Yeah. Booker can use these hooks to traverse areas and access places where you couldn't normally reach. Very handy indeed particularly if, like me, you enjoy finding secret chests and things like that. Yeah, exactly. There's got a lot of exploration rewarding going on in this game for looking in every little corner, and there's even some bits down the line, like various uh, kind of enigma puzzles that you need to find books in order to help Elizabeth solve. Um, All sorts of things to just kind of motivate you to explore the game a little bit more and pay attention to your surroundings. Continuing through the city, we head through an area owned by another Founders-affiliated organisation called the Fraternal Order of the Raven. This is a bunch of extreme racists concerned with the racial purity of the city and primarily worship the now-deceased Lady Comstock, who we saw in a picture on the wall in the church earlier. According to the wiki, the group glorifies John Wilkes Booth as a saint for assassinating Abraham Lincoln, as we mentioned earlier, who they refer to as the Emancipator or the Apostate, a term Zachary Hell Comstock often uses in reference to the same, whom they view as wicked for abolishing slavery. In this section, we are introduced to another heavy-hitter enemy in this game, called the Zealot of the Lady. These cowardly enemies are surrounded by a flock of crows and cloaked in black, with a coffin tied to the back with chains. They use a vigour called Murder of Crows to disappear and reappear at will and send crows to attack Booker. Once defeated, Booker is then able to retrieve the Murder of Crows vigour from the deceased zealot, which allows him to wield the power of the crows and send them out to violently peck and attack multiple enemies at once, leaving them distracted and vulnerable to further attacks. Like the Devil's Kiss ability, Booker can also charge the Murder of Crows vigour to create traps instead. And this was the one that I used... And I'm still using, and I'm probably going to use the rest of the game because it is f***ing awesome. Not only does it look cool, but it sounds cool and it's f***ing useful. The animation and the effects that it inflicts upon the enemies as they're getting pecked is really cool as well. 
It's everything I wanted the bees to be in the previous two games. It's just that, but so much better. And shouts yeah. to crows. Crows are wicked, and I don't think they get enough love. And the great thing about this is relatively early doors, and for quite cheap, considering some of the prices you pay for some of these upgrades. I think it's 1,400 silvers. But yeah. you can get a special upgrade to the Murder of Crows Vigor that basically whenever you kill someone who's under the effect of it, it then turns their corpse into a Murder of Crows trap. Which when you're doing some of the big fights you get in open sections of the game can just lead to just the most pick your shot style like crapshoot <laughs> yeah. you've got it's just like oh shit, there's five guys over there who are just like slapping and flapping about these crows i'm just gonna kill them all real quick and their corpses are now when other people run in it's making more of them do it and the range this thing has you can fire one set of crows and like a guy on the other side of the screen will get affected by it it's mad it's got very long ranges as well as a very yeah. widespread as well very very powerful so good probably one of the most powerful abilities in the game in terms of enemies it can affect at once yeah certainly the most powerful one i've found so far booker then fights his way through the rest of the fraternity and is able to escape through to the rest of the city as part of our main goal of getting to elizabeth in monument island we now need to traverse the skylines using our trusty skyhook and find a gondola that will take us to the island as we head towards Monument Island Gateway, Comstock's voice appears over a megaphone and he orders his guards into a truce. Stand down! Stand down! And I actually, uh, shamefully, I killed all the guards. While you they just massacred all the guards. Yeah. Hey, hands in the air, I did on my first playthrough as well. Hey, okay, <laughs> they could get up at some point. Exactly that. I was preparing yeah. myself for him to like suddenly exactly. call them to yeah. arms again. Exactly. Each of the guards obeys and kneels as Comstock speaks. Comstock addresses Booker, telling him he knows why he is here. I know why you have come, false shepherd. I see every sin that blackens your soul. Wounded knee. The Pinkertons, the drinker, the gambler. Before taunting us more and telling Booker that his involvement always ends in bloodshed, causing Booker to have a strangely coincidental nosebleed, Comstock calls in an airship to attack our location. Luckily, Booker is able to escape the area and board the attacking airship using some nearby skylines. He fights his way past more officers guarding the control room to the airship and finally is able to seize the controls. In the room is an inconspicuous looking nun dressed all in white who is praying quietly in the corner. As Booker redirects the controls, Comstock appears in front of us standing on a gondola, distracting Booker just long enough for the naughty nun to set the room ablaze and force us to escape out of a loading hatch via another skyline. Yeah, she basically like, chucks a molly on herself. Pretty much, yeah. Burns herself and the entirety of the cabin in the process. Yeah. Escaping, though, as we dismount the final skyline, Booker enters Monument Island. On entering the building where Elizabeth is apparently being kept, it becomes very apparent that scientists of Columbia have been studying Elizabeth while she's kept in captivity. It's also clear she is regarded as highly dangerous as we move past large signs warning of dangers interacting with the specimen, and there are also signs of a 72-hour quarantine being in place for anyone entering the area where Elizabeth's living quarters are situated. In the lab area, we can see experiments taking place, and there are objects including a book, a teddy bear, and an old-time female hygiene product marked with a sign saying 13 years next to it kept in glass jars. If the player chooses to press the buttons next to each jar, a flash will cover the object and the colours of the teddy bear and book will change and the blood on the cloth disappears. But what could this all mean? 
As we enter the living quarters, Booker sees a Big Brother-esque setup where the scientists have built observation rooms around each room of Elizabeth's, such as the library, dining room, conservatory, and even the bathroom and dressing room. We move our way through, and Booker is able to lift shutters that open the viewing screens, which are like a one-way mirror the authorities can use during interrogations, so that they look in but the person on the inside of the room can only see a mirror. We see Elizabeth looking at a photo of the Eiffel Tower, and she moves into another room where she's also painted a picture of the Eiffel Tower as well. She's clearly dreaming of one day being able to see it for herself, as she cherishes looking at the photos she has. Suddenly, Elizabeth reaches towards her painting and appears to mime pulling two sliding doors apart, and as she continues to do this, a portal resembling a vertical tear begins to rip open, and with a final forced push, she is able to rip a large hole in the wall. Whoa! Which is a portal into the real world street in Paris, where she can actually see the tower itself. Much like the music we've heard in the game so far, and the modern scene in New York being under attack, the timing of this scene also doesn't make sense. We can see Elizabeth is also able to see a nearby cinema display through the portal, and there is an advertisement for Star Wars Return of the Jedi, which was released in 1983, obviously once again being incongruent with the current times in the game. Elizabeth is forced to close the portal suddenly though, as a blaring ambulance starts heading straight towards her down the road. Maybe those warnings about Elizabeth and the dangers of meeting her aren't entirely unfounded. Booker eventually climbs above the living quarters and ends up falling through a hatch that lands him on the floor of the library, now being attacked by a thoroughly alarmed Elizabeth who was sat reading a book. Uh, hello. <laughs> hey! Knock it off! Stop it! Will you stop it? Booker manages to convince Elizabeth that he poses no threat, and tells her he is here to get her out of there, obviously leaving out the part where he's doing this to erase a large amount of debt owed. As they speak, a siren issues from a nearby golden statue, and we begin to hear crashing noises, accompanied by shrieking, echoing howls and whines. Elizabeth begins to panic, telling Booker that he has to leave immediately, and he offers her the key he received in the box at the beginning of the game. Elizabeth recognises this as the key marked with the birdcage, signalling the way out of her metaphorical birdcage. As they leave the library and begin to exit through the back rooms, Elizabeth quickly becomes aware every moment of her life has been closely observed and recorded something she wasn't aware of previously, only understanding that she was being kept inside her living quarters, held by whatever is making the horrifying wailing noises that appear to be ever-growing in volume. As Booker and Elizabeth continue their escape, it becomes apparent that the large creature is tearing down the building they are in, as massive claws rip through thick metal walls trying to find a way in. As they make their way outside, we get glimpses of a giant winged beast flying in the air trying to find us. They reach the top of a platform and are suddenly both knocked off by the beast. However, Booker is able to grab Elizabeth, and with the arm and shoulder muscles of an absolute god, falls about 100 metres through the air and is somehow able to latch on to a lucky sky rail and survive, all whilst keeping Elizabeth held in his arms. As they round a turn on the sky rail with the collapsing golden angel of Monument Island destroyed by the attacking monster off in the background, the peril is far from over. The flying monster continues to attack them both and is destroying the buildings as they sail past, eventually leading to the sky rail they're on being broken and leading them to fall into a large body of water below. As Booker falls into the water, we see our attacker dive into the depths following us, desperately clawing as we sink further down. Our pursuit is finally over when the pressure from the water begins to damage 
damage the bird-like creature and it is forced to resurface after its eye starts to crack. Our screen fades to black as Booker presumably falls unconscious. We are again met with a familiar scene back in Booker's office being heckled by the mysterious stranger standing outside. This time Elizabeth happens to be in the room, acting strangely and repeating phrases our unwanted guest is saying. As Booker once again pushes his office door open, we are blinded by a bright light, followed by the view of Elizabeth standing over us on a beach having just performed CPR. And that, folks, is where we leave it for this episode. Can't wait to get into that next week on another episode of Total Pod Mode. Okay, man, with Completionist Corner finished off and ready for the next week, let's lay out the socials one last time before we close off the show. You can, as always, find the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts by searching for Total Pod Mode. We also post regular video content of our playthroughs, stream highlights, as well as the podcast on our YouTube channel, Total Pod Mode. You can also find us on Twitter by searching for at Total Pod Mode, all one word. And whilst you're there, you can find me at Mr. Bames, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Mr. Bames underscore TPM. And you can find me at Hoodafunk on Twitter, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Hoodafunk. Okay, man, so with another episode closed off, just one final humble request from our listeners to jump online to uh, the social media platforms that we've just listed there, drop the podcast a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice, and share the podcast with your friends. We are a small podcast, but we're looking to grow, you know? We're ready to take that underdog position into the Champion League, so uh, please do go ahead, share the podcast, and leave us a review if you would be so kind. Yeah, and if you've got anything you'd like us to discuss, any questions you'd like to ask, maybe the will on myself then please drop us a message we'd love to hear from you yeah we also have an email address that we do a very poor job of advertising and if you would like to shoot us over a comment in a less open field like youtube you can always email us at totalpopmode at gmail.com so james with all of that said it's time to close the episode massive thank you to everyone who's listened so far and we'll see you guys next week we appreciate you guys take care goodbye